Welcome to Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. Today we talk to Philip Hamburger, the Maurice and Hilda Friedman Professor of Law at Columbia University, about the surprising origins of the IRS's restrictions on charities' political speech and why those restrictions ought to be regarded as unconstitutional. Let's go. Givers, Doers, and Thinkers introduces listeners to the fascinating people and important ideas at the heart of American civil society. We speak with philanthropists, nonprofit leaders, social entrepreneurs, historians, journalists, and anyone else who will help us understand contemporary civil society's achievements and failures. We also sprinkle in practical advice for nonprofit leaders and fundraisers. My name is Jeremy Beer, and thanks for joining us. All right. Thank you for joining us uh, for another episode of Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. Uh, today, I am honored to have as my guest, Professor Philip Hamburger. Uh, yes, today we have a Dr. Beer speaking with a Professor Hamburger. Surely you never thought <laughs> you would see the day. <laughs> How are you, Professor? Thank you so much. Great to be here with another food group. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I've been looking forward to that introduction. So uh, you have degrees from Princeton, Yale. I'm just going to continue a little bit, uh, tell people a little bit more about you. Uh, and uh, one of the nation's preeminent constitutional law experts uh, among uh, Philip Hamburger's writings are two important books about the threat to political liberty posed by so-called administrative law. Those books are titled, Is Administrative Law Unlawful? And uh, the other book is The Administrative Threat. Uh, and there's a seminal book about religious jurisprudence titled Separation of Church and State. It's a wonderful book that I read some years ago. And uh, a recent book titled Liberal Suppression, Section 501c3 and the Taxation of Speech. And I don't think it's going too far to say it's the most interesting book ever written about Section 501c3. Uh, and I'm looking forward to talking to you, uh, you about that. Um, we'll focus mostly on that, although we'll also get to some maybe some questions about administrative law, and you can introduce that to, to the audience and talk about what that is. I also want to mention that you are the founder of Columbia Law School's Center for Law and Liberty, and you are directly involved in the nonprofit sector as the founder and president of the New Civil Liberties Alliance, which engages in litigation and advocacy to defend constitutional freedoms against the administrative state. So we'll talk about that as well. Professor Hamburger, welcome. Thank you so much. It's really great to be here. Thank you. We're honored to have you. As I said, there aren't too many podcasts, first of all, that are actually interested in anything like the Section 501c3 of the uh, tax code. Uh, and there certainly aren't many people who have written uh, interesting books about 501c3. So I was very eager to have you on um, because we're, we're a podcast about civil society, you know, the space for a voluntary association that stands between the state and the individual. Uh, and certainly, um, that's really 501c3 is what sort of what covers for the most part those kinds of voluntary associations. So, um, you, you make a seemingly radical argument. Um, I'm going to see if I just boil it down very quickly and you can correct me if I'm wrong. But your argument basically is that by restricting political speech, uh, among, uh, charities that are, um, would you say organized under or have the status, 501c3 status under the tax code. By restricting political speech among those organizations, the IRS essentially taxes that speech unconstitutionally. Is that a very correct quick summary of the argument? Yes. It's a, uh, it, it's, the government essentially has two tax rates. Uh, there's a zero tax rate for those who suppress their speech in politics and a regular tax 
um, rate for those who don't suppress their political speech. And this is rather odd because one would have thought political speech is to be highly protected. Um, right. But one way, another way of thinking it, about it is that uh, if you're an idealistic organization, one aiming for the greater good, whatever that may be, uh, you actually have your engagement in politics, politics truncated. If on the contrary, you are a political organization, uh, you're not truncated in your politics and you're tax exempt. There's something very odd going on here. It, no, why is it it's very rarely framed in that way? Uh, usually it's framed as, um, hey, we're giving you a subsidy. The taxpayers are giving you 501c3 organization, um, special tax subsidy. Uh, you know, I, all we ask is that you not engage uh, directly in political activity. And even even then, there's a little bit of political activity is, is tolerated, I think 5% of your time or resources. I forget exactly what it is, you could tell me. Um, why isn't that a, a fair deal? Yes. Why, why not make a deal? Um, and, and in fact, a former colleague of mine, Frank Easterbrook, now on the Seventh Circuit, wrote a famous article in which he said, essentially, you know, your constitutional rights are very valuable, so valuable, we should recognize their commercial worth. And they're all the more valuable to you if you can sell them. Um, but there are a host of funny things going on in this argument, right? So just, to, just for starters, uh, these are often called nonprofits, uh, meaning that they're defined in terms of their status in the tax code, or they're called exempt organizations, even more clearly defined in tax terms. But that's the tail wagging the dog. Instead of letting the tax code define one's constitutional status, let's start with basics. Um, we have many organizations, associations in this country. Some are religious, right? Some are political. Um, some are for business. Uh, and uh, the ones that are at stake here are religious, educational, and other charitable organizations, ones that are designed to pursue idealistically the common good. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's of some significance. Uh, who would have thought that we should be silencing those who are idealistic and leaving everybody else to speak as they please? That's really rather odd, isn't it? Um, and it, it's the beginning of understanding there's something strange going on here. Uh, now, the funny thing is, they're actually not told what they can say it's not as if they're told no political speech. They're actually told to stay out of certain political venues. They're not allowed to get in lobbying uh, sort to some degree, and they're not allowed to engage to some degree in electioneering. In other words, it's the two modes of access to representative government that are being cut off or truncated, not fully truncated, but largely truncated, um, just enough to make them withdraw. And the, co the costs for engaging course, are very high for those that have any substantial income, and especially high uh, when you consider that it's tied to deductibility, right? Yes. So there's a sort of interorum effect um, on churches, and that's churches, of course, are a particular concern, but other so-called nonprofits, idealistic organizations. So why are we treating them differently? And now you could say it's, again, a deal, right? What a deal. You get no taxes, just tamper down your political speech or your speech in political venues. But the awkwardness is, you know, the Constitution isn't a contract. It's a law. And it's a law made by the people. So how is it that a deal between the government and some private party 
can truncate your constitutional rights. I don't, that's not clear how that can happen. It seems like a very interesting part of your argument. So it is that uh, you, you essentially, you can't bargain away constitutional rights. Is, is that essentially part of what you're arguing? Yes. Now, there are some constitutional rights that are phrased in a way that invite um, waiver, consensual waivers of the, right, of the exercise of the right. Mm-hmm. You're not actually waiving the right. It's just the exercise of it in, in limited circumstances. But we can't go too far down that route. Otherwise, essentially, government will use our money, our tax money, to purchase our constitutional freedoms. Right. Uh, and the and you know we had a contractual vision of the Constitution. It was called the Articles of Confederation. That didn't work very well. And then the Confederacy urged the Constitution was just a contract, and because it had been violated, they thought by the North, so the Southern states could walk away. That didn't end well either. Um, so are we now to suppose that the government can buy its way out of the Constitution by making a deal with you know Hamburger, give up its free speech? Not that any amount would suffice for me. And the funny thing is, of course, they're paying the wrong people uh, because I don't think my speech is particularly valuable. Let's suppose they bought your speech. That would be a great loss not just for you, but for everybody else listening to your program. So you actually would have to buy everybody's consent to this. And that's exactly what they're trying to avoid. It's interesting. When you frame it this way, it's kind of mind-blowing for people, I feel like. And I I read a number of the reviews, and it would seem to be hard for people to get (laughs) their minds around this radical reframing of the question that, that you are posing with respect to 501c3. The, but let me read, I thought this was very telling. This was from uh, one review, uh, a man named Bruce Fronin, uh, a friend of, friend of mine, friend of ours. And I thought this was an interesting quote. Uh, from before the founding into the 20th century, common law recognized that churches and other voluntary associations are not commercial profit-making enterprises. Fraud existed and was to be punished. But nonprofits' essential character as associations meant that their incomes, like their property and activities in general, are not appropriate objects for taxation, end quote. And I just, it really struck me because I think most people would be surprised to hear that the IRS didn't just invent the idea of tax-exempt status for certain kinds of entities out of whole cloth. This is a, a, something we've inherited from our common law tradition. Yeah, that's right. It's interesting. And it's it gets the question of w- of what income is and what the income tax applies to. Uh, we could make a constitutional argument about that. I don't really want to do that right now, but certainly statutorily, one has to recognize that the income tax actually was never understood to apply to non-income producing entities. Mm. And, the ch- and, and for the re- very reasons you mentioned, this common law background, uh, the so-called nonprofits, the idealistic organizations that were charitable, were not understood as income-producing entities. They're actually outside the ambit of the income tax. And so it really doesn't make sense to say that they're actually being given anything here. Um, now, let's suppose actually that they were taxable under the, income ta- uh, under the statute and that they are being essentially given something through uh, tax expenditures, the economists call it. Um, that's a rather do- funny argument because, of course, offering freedom from tax- uh, taxes to some degree is actually not the same as giving cash. Um, if someone offers you cash, you actually can choose whether or not you're going to be involved in this deal. When someone says, I'm going to tax you, uh, unless, you unless you shut up, um, that's not really so voluntary. <laughs> no, that's right? more like mafioso than it is right. uh, a contract. And, of course, the theory that what is untaxed 
is actually a gift is rather curious because by that notion, the government has just given, you know, let's suppose they tax me at 40% here in New York, let's say it's 50%. That means that the remaining 60 or 50% is actually a gift to me. So perhaps they can take my speech too, right? Yes. So Hebriger will tax you at 60%. Um, but if you shut up, and of course we want you to shut up, you know, <laughs> you get the idea. Um, that, that the money they leave in my hand is actually not a gift from them. So the notion of tax expenditure, though, may make sense for economists, cannot make sense for purposes of constitutional law. Mm. Well, that's a very, it's a great distinction and one that seems to be increasingly lost. Before we, before we get to all that, I, can we just back up for a second? I wonder if you could narrate for people a little bit of the history of this restriction on political speech among charities. It's very interesting. You go over it in your book at length. It's actually rather troubling. Um, you connect it to concerns about the influence of Catholicism in particular. Um, oh, can you talk about this, the history of all this and how it's kind of a little bit ugly? Yeah. So, I, 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 and I should say how I came to write this book. I, who in the right mind would have voluntarily written a whole book on 5013, <laughs> right? This is, not a, this is neither politically acceptable nor is it, of course, a good literary enterprise. But um, I happened, you know, I once was a tax lawyer back in my youth. And I happened to be interested in free speech. And uh, because of my study of religious liberty, I ended up becoming something of a scholar on the Ku Klux Klan. Mm. And that certain zing to one's life sometimes. At any rate, um, all these things came together here. So way back when, around 1920, 21, um, there was, I don't want to call him a gentleman, there was a man called Hiram Evans um, in Dallas, and he was a dentist. He had a big, big smile and apparently was quite affable when he wanted to be. At any rate, at one point, he, uh, being a member of a clavern down there and wanted to take a leadership role, um, led some of his compatriots um, in going into a hotel, uh, grabbing a bellhop who happened to be African-American, dragging him down to the river, whipping him, and etched with acid into his forehead the letters KKK. Being a dentist, he had access to chemicals. Um, not surprisingly, a year later, he is elevated for his exploits, I suppose, um, to be imperial wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. Now, the, Hiram Evans was no fool. He understood, as no one else did, the way in which, uh, if you took the right theological position for the Klan, and it was a theologically oriented organization, um, one could actually propel it into national power. And that's what happened. Uh, he saw that, it, you know, people sometimes say that the Klan was a fundamentalist group, and that actually gets it exactly wrong. Um, it was a theologically liberal group. Uh, Interesting. Evans, yeah, Evans wrote actually long, historically uh, learned tracts on the virtues of liberal theology. Um, he viewed himself as a liberal, um, but he doesn't mean an economic liberal. He means a theological liberal, someone suspicious of ecclesiastical authority. Translation, he didn't like the Catholic Church. <laughs> and um, so, but if you put it in terms of liberal theology, it gives it a slightly sanitized sound. Um, in any case, he could draw people from many different organ religious organizations into this group, and they soon had millions. Anyway, in 1930, when the influence of the Klan was waning, he writes a book um, called the, the, the Rising Storm, and he's calling people back to the danger of hierarchy in the Catholic Church and the need for a liberal policy, meaning theologically liberal. 
And what he proposes is the only way really you're going to secure the separation of church and state and protect this country from the Catholic menace, as well as other hierarchical menaces, um, is to uh, limit church organizations in politics, in particular to limit their influence in electoral politics and their influence in lobbying. In other words, he was the first person to suggest the two limitations that became 501c3. That is amazing. So really, <laughs> these limitations really do arise out of Iram Evans' fevered, clannish brain. It's straight from the, the head of the KKK, from the imperial wizard himself. And you know, this is a guy who hung out in Farragut Square in Washington, hopnob with congressmen. Um, he was a member of the Congressional Country Club. And four years later, uh, Senator, Sen Senator Reid introduces one of these limitations, 1934. In 1954, um, LBJ introduces the other. And bingo, we have 501c3. And now I assume there was a lot of, uh, as you put it earlier, sanitation that went on at some point as uh, <laughs> the plan falls somewhat out of favor after the 20s and 30s. Right. Um, how did that all work out? You know, the sanitation I particularly dislike is that of librarians. Uh, if you mm. go to Library Congress or any serious library, supposedly serious library, they don't have little pamphlets and leaflets. They certainly don't have clan pamphlets and leaflets. Um, they, they like things that are neatly bound and that can be moved around at high speed. And they don't like nativist history. It's embarrassing. It's painful. And so it's just gone from the shelf. It's hard to find pamphlets. I would imagine that it is. Yeah, that's, that, that is fascinating. And it does connect in your, um, uh, in your story with a, a concept uh, favored uh, by liberalism that you call mental freedom. And I want to talk to you about that as soon as we come back from a break, ask you about how that concept kind of plays out in liberal uh, political theory and with respect to sort of suppressing political speech among charities, especially religious charities. We'll be right back with Professor Philip Hamburger. All right. Uh, it is time for one of our practicalities here on Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. And today we have with us one of the partners here at American Philanthropic, Matt Gherkin. How are you, Matt? Doing great. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. Uh, Matt, uh, you have been doing some things recently. Uh, they're uh, producing some very interesting results and having um, some really nice uh, benefits for our clients involving surveying their donors. It, it doesn't seem to be something that um, many nonprofits actually do very often, especially compared to for-profit companies. Am I right about that? Yeah, I think that's correct. Uh, you know, sometimes you see the old school sort of push polling survey uh, that's really just a donation device in disguise. But in terms of genuine surveys uh, of donors, I think that's a, a newer thing that we're seeing more nonprofits get into. And, and why, why do that? I mean, because yeah, what you say, what, the kind of surveys you see, we're not talking about the the fake surveys here of, you know, the three item <laughs> survey that comes into your inbox. Um, that's really just a lead generation device. We're talking about real surveys, correct? If so, why are we doing this? Yeah. So I, I think there's a fundamental aversion to surveys that a lot of people have. At least I certainly had it uh, coming into this work originally, which is that a lot of us uh, hate taking surveys. You know, I hate when 
you go to the store to buy apples and you immediately get a notification on your phone asking you, you know, how do you feel about these apples? Do they make you feel joyful on a one to five scale or something like that, right? Um, but one big lesson in all of fundraising really is that your, your donors are not like you. Uh, and figuring out the ways that they are not like you is incredibly important for fundraising success. So you may not be a survey taker or a survey lover, uh, but many of your donors will uh, because they care about the cause. They care about the mission uh, that you are working on. And so then when they take those surveys, they'll tell you even more ways that they are not like you uh, that can really help you uh, advance things forward. Uh, so why why do donor surveys? Uh, there's really three core reasons. The first reason is the, the obvious, most scientific one. You want to know what your donors believe or how they are acting. You have questions about your donor base that you legitimately do not know the answer to, you're unsure about. Uh, it could be perceptions about strategies that you're pursuing. It could be about their giving to other groups. Uh, it could be how they maybe rank uh, particular subcategories of your work. You know, if you're working on, on housing and you're working on uh, feeding the poor and you're working on, you know, other categories of things, which are your donors really passionate about and which are they maybe unaware of or less passionate about? Uh, and then factual things too. Are they reading your emails or materials? Uh, those sorts of things. So that's one reason. Um, and the second reason is it is an act of cultivation. For the vast majority of your donors that do not have, you know, a major gifts officer knocking on their door every six months, there is no opportunity for them to give any sort of meaningful feedback to you uh, other than a survey. Uh, and they and almost all donors have no way to give feedback confidentially. Um, so just asking for their opinions in the first place shows that you value uh, what they think about the organization. And we will find that people who take those surveys are going to be much more likely to take other positive steps as donors, renew their gift, increase their gift, those sorts of things. And then the, that gets to the third reason, which is if you can do a survey that is confidential, but not anonymous, in other words, we can tie a particular answer to a donor record in your system, then surveys can also become an important generator of leads for you for major gifts and planned gifts. So a uh, donor might tell you about another organization that they support at higher levels than they're giving to you right now and thereby show potential uh, major gifts value. Uh, and even sometimes we find donors will tell you that they've already left you uh, in their will. We've had several client organizations learn about fairly large planned gifts this way. Someone just clicked on the survey yes, I've, I've left the organization in my will. And they learned about uh, those gifts that way. Uh, oftentimes from people who were not major cash supporters who they'd never talked to in any other context. Uh, so those are, the, those are the three primary reasons that you'd want to be uh, getting into survey work. Uh, the plan gift information is really particularly useful and is some of the most surprising data often gleaned from these surveys. One more thing before we go, I, I would just mentioned it, what we found is these don't have to be five item or 10 item surveys. You can do 20, 30, 40 items in a survey and still get a really good response rate from your donors oftentimes, right? Yes, it's, it's incredible. Uh, it shocks 
Most people we talk to or come to with this idea, they are shocked at the number of questions that their donors will answer. Uh, but you have to remember, they care about the organization. They care about the mission. Uh, and they will tell you in, in great detail in many cases um, mm-hmm. what, what they think about a, a great number of things. And so we've always found we have very high participation rates and we have very high completion rates of those who start the survey you know, 80, 90% sometimes uh, they start and they go all the way through a 20 or 30 uh, item questionnaire. Well, generally, if you give people a chance to talk, they will do that. And that's what you're doing with the survey. So thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. Good tips. Thank you, Jeremy. All right. Uh, We are back with Columbia University Professor of Law, Philip Hamburger, author of Liberal Suppression, Section 501c3 and the Taxation of Speech, and president of the New Civil Liberties Alliance, which we will be asking about here in a bit. So um, I just introduced this concept from, you introduced it, your, your words, mental freedom, and how central it is to sort of liberal a political theory. I mean, liberal sort of in the broad sense, although it also applies in the more narrow political sense, the American context. You talk about what that is, mental freedom, and how it's kind of connected to this sort of idea of an ecclesiastical menace out there. Sure. Um, you know, the idea of intellectual freedom, of mental freedom, is very appealing. If I think about what I like, talking with students or engaging, I want mental freedom. I don't want to explore all ideas without any prior supposition that any of them are disreputable or to be put aside, to explore everything afresh. That's the role of an academic. However, um, idea, you know, good ideas, at least ideas are good in some circumstances, are not necessarily appealing at all. The notion of mental, mental freedom for many uh, liberal Protestants, theologically liberal Protestants, was a, a freedom from the fear, the threat um, of orthodoxy. Right. If somebody is committed to a hierarchy, to punishments in the next world, to anything that seems severe or reprimanding or judgmental, um, it might cow one into submissions that one didn't, was afraid to think uh, freely about religion. And the, the fear was that this would actually uh, distract one from one's true faith, from the commitment to the ideas one really believed, and thereby lead one to damnation. So there was a theological argument uh, for uh, trying to get away from impingement of other people's ideas on one's own. But of course, this is easily taken in, in a sort of hysterical antagonism against all orthodoxies, all mm-hmm. statements of truth that seem unbending. And of course, it's very popular amongst, in the early 19th century among Unitarians and others. Um, and by the late 19th century, there's even a political party associated with it, the National Liberal League. That fails um, because perhaps they're too capacious. Um, but uh, they, they become associated with the free love types and then law respectability. That was the end of their political party. However, um, the Ku Klux Klan picks up on this as nativists do generally. The nativists in their anti-Catholicism take a theologically liberal stance against the Catholic Church, against its dogmas, its authority, and hierarchy. Um, And the net effect is to undermine the legitimacy of speech from those who seem orthodox, who seem dogmatic, speak from authority. If you are, uh, if you speak, if you t- seem to be speaking from that sort of position, it merely betrays 
the fact that your mind has been sort of illegitimately shaped, perhaps even really against your will, by this sort right. of um, uh, a strong power or authority. Is that is that sort of the right. idea? You yeah. become mentally enslaved, if not to the Pope, at least to your fears of damnation or your your, your anxiety to please a hierarchy. So the, the net effect um, is to treat um, Catholic speech and indeed all theologically orthodox speech as actually a threat to democracy on the theory, well, because um, right. when citizens who think for themselves, translation, Catholics shouldn't vote. You need teachers who think for themselves and are not dogmatic. Translation, Catholics should not be public school teachers. Um, and so anyone, and, and of course, this is now, this sort of theorizing is now applied to conservatives generally. Um, yeah. You have these views, there's something rigid about the way you think. In fact, you're unthinking. And this is actually a threat to the freedom of others uh, to think for themselves because you're being judgmental in a way that impinges on their sense of interior freedom and, and their identity and so forth. And that's how we get to the, actually the modern conundrum we have, political correctness. Yes, there's an, there's an anthropology smuggled in in, in, in this uh, sort of alleged yeah. neutrality, right, of, of, of liberalism that uh, the anthropology essentially says that we are all blank slates. And if, to the extent that we're not blank slates, we need to be made blank slates <laughs> so that we can, uh, you know, uh, discover our own sort of uh, true, genuine selves and identities, and therefore our thoughts and, and stuff, etc. But it's a that that anthropology is a is a challengeable <laughs> anthropology, right. but it's never sort of admitted to. It seems to me, right? It's never like just put out there explicitly. It's always it's always concealed. Uh, would you, is, does that seem to be the case to you? Like it's always under the surface. Well, it, does, it does seem to me. So it seems to me the very strength. We normally think we have to rethink prejudice and hate and what we really mean by this, most people think that which, you know, the KKK was terrible because it was so, it, may, it was so odious. Um, but that doesn't, that fails to capture the fact that it was a popular movement and popular movements do not rise on being negative. They rise on being very positive. And there was an element of sort of a half truth that gets lost in all of this, which is that, you know, yes, thinking for yourself can be very valuable. But no one can think for themselves all the time. It's very valuable to right. actually have hierarch some hierarchies of thought. And the danger is that this, this, this notion, which has some value, for example, in the academic sphere, can easily be turned into a way of denigrating entire classes of Americans and then to, even depriving them of their freedom of speech on the grounds that their speech coming from a hierarchy and deference to authority threat to democracy, and hence five, and then we're silencing idealistic institutions as a result. This is bizarre beyond belief. It is, but it's, it, and it's historically, uh, it seems like very tenacious. Uh, you're, you're giving yeah. us sort of an argument that was made a hundred years ago now that is um, very easy to spy in the public conversation today. Uh, right. uh, no one wants to know that the Ku Klux Klan actually held positions remarkably similar to their own. <laughs> <laughs> no, no one wants it's to. Not to say that it's not to say that contemporaries are you know are, are like the Ku Klux Klan. That, that's, no. that's not what it's about. Right. But that history should make one pause. It should make one wonder: Is the constitutional argument for this actually serious? Indeed, and it's very interesting for you to show that this is the sort of thinking that is is uh, behind and led directly to. The creation of, of this section of the tax code, uh, the yeah. suppression of political speech by charities. So, uh, yeah, legally speaking, you are a lawyer. Is there any 
um, is your view, is there a case that even theoretically could, could come before some court somewhere, which um, that your view would get a hearing and potentially even have influence on a ruling? Well, I hope so. Okay, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't think, I, I don't want to speculate on exactly what that case would be. Uh, but yes, uh, there, are, there are grave difficulties in litigating this. I should just put that out front. Um, they're very, I, I, I don't want to bore you on tax law and standing, um, but to bring it to standing in the case to challenge this is not uncomplicated. Uh, one day I do hope to litigate this, but I want to do it prudently at the right time in the right place um, with, with, with clear standing. Uh, so one thing at a time. But yes, it should, it, it, this all needs to come before the courts again. Could it be, sta- is there a stat- potential statutory solution, either at the state or federal level? You know, I have so little confidence in our politicians, I confess. Yeah. <laughs> I would prefer that. That's rational. Um, but that's a nice thought. <laughs> oh, Jeremy, you're so naive. That's, <laughs> I think that there could be, all right, all right, yes, litigation is the way to go. But that, that's, you're not, you haven't complete. I wasn't clear to me from the book or from, that you thought there really could be potentially, um, yeah, uh, successful litigation is not impossible. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Um, and uh, th- look, this is an academic book. It, the design is to open up question, to get people to rethink what seemed unthinkable, that in fact that this whole regime is unconstitutional and a threat to idealistic speech. But if, what, what are charities if not idealistic organizations? And what are we doing placing undue burdens on charitable organizations and not others? This is clearly unconstitutional. But the first move, the first step in any movement or litigation is get people to think about the problem. Um, once people, and so this, I'm, this is why I'm particularly grateful to you for doing this program. It will get people to rethink it. And then there can be litigation, but you can't litigate before the rethinking has occurred. Have you spoken to any church or other nonprofit leaders about this argument? Uh, if you have, have they welcomed it? Or are they like, oh, gee, don't even, let's not even go there? Um, I'm just curious. You know, I, I have, um, huh, I, I, so first of all, I talked to, to some folks about the ramifications of this for individuals, because of course, churches become agents for controlling their members. We have a privatization of regulation in the country where the federal government and states hand off regulation to universities, churches alike. And in order to comply with 501c3, many pastors or churches will actually instruct their members not to talk about politics in certain circumstances. That's profoundly dangerous, okay? So I'm talking about that. Now, you're, th- you're talking about litigation. I think there's some unease. Uh, many church leaders, I suspect, are cautious because they wouldn't want their Deduction, the deductions and exemption taken away from them in a vindictive manner afterwards. Uh, but I think that also could, they could be litigated to defend against that. I don't think that's actually the real problem. The real problem is one of standing and, and, and also education beforehand. So it's a slow process. Nothing happens overnight. And this program will help educate people about the risks and, you know, in a few years perhaps. Well, that maybe that brings us to a good place to, to talk a little bit about the new Civil Liberties Alliance, um, which I think you founded and you're the president of, because it does litigation and advocacy in, in, uh, to defend constitutional freedoms, uh, particularly against the administrative state. Can you talk about, yeah, what the alliance is, why you founded it, what it does? Well, um, it's not the ACLU. 
we actually defend your civil liberties. <laughs> um, so it was founded out of a sense of frustration. Uh, the primary threat to civil liberties in this country uh, these days uh, is, in fact, the administrative state. Uh, it deprives us of all of our procedural rights when it, you're held in front of an administrative agency and they're sort of fake judges called ALJs, administrative law judges. It deprives us of our freedom of self-government because you know, most of our laws, the vast majority of our laws, are not made by people we elected. Uh, right. They're made by agencies. And these agencies are filled with well-meaning and often very well-educated folks who claim expertise. But as we've seen in COVID, their expertise sometimes um, is not up to the task because, of course, expertise is different from science. Expertise is well-established is well science. Cutting-edge science actually... <laughs> Um, cannot be reduced to rules. It's all about inquiry and, and, and questioning. Right. So there's a great danger in this mode of regulation. Of course, it's a class-based regulation. We don't have necessarily a ruling class. We have a rule-making class, however, hmm. and they like to instruct the rest of us, us peasants. And you become a peasant merely by questioning the administrative state, uh, as I've found out. <laughs> um, so there's something very dangerous about this, and it, it's worth pushing back. And I was disappointed with the way it was being litigated. So although I was very much just an academic beforehand, I suddenly found myself starting up an organization. And by some miracle, it took off. We now have 20 people working in Washington. Uh, we, we've made great progress, astonishing progress in just three or four years. Uh, it, it's quite fun. Uh, so I think we're, we're going to knock down this administrative state a bit. Maybe not completely, but we're going to we're going to have some success. Well, it's very interesting to hear about that and, and heartening. Um, uh, it seems like we don't hear much about the administrative. I feel like we heard a little bit of the administrative state, even though it's even more in our lives now than it has ever been. Um, uh, it seems like it hasn't really been picked up on by a lot of other um, organizations that would be concerned about political liberty. Self-government. <laughs> you mean the ACLU? <laughs> yeah, for instance. Right. The ACLU spends hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe even every year. Their budget's enormous. Ours is yeah. quite large. But the, um, the commitment to free speech, and of course, administrative state is one of the chief threats to free speech, um, Title IX and all that. The administrative state systematically erodes our free speech, our jury rights, our right to have a trial the right of self-government. And uh, many liberal organizations have become enamored of the administrative state. It seems to be a way of exercising power that they like. And that's a pity because many of these organizations once knew better. You know, many organizations once knew that jury rights matter, that the right to see a judge matters. Um, and that's sad. So we're entirely apolitical. We're not, you know, I happen to be slight, mildly conservative, but I would never... Um, you know, we, we, we hire people left and right. Um, we just hired actually a, a New York public defender who was so sick of COVID regulations, she came to work for us. It's, it, the point is to fight the danger and to do it strategically. And where are the vulnerabilities? Where, um, where do you see strategic opportunities to right. really make a serious dent in the administrative state? Well, for one thing, we have to think of the administrative state as a threat to civil liberties. Too often it's thought of as a separation of powers issue. Once one realizes it's a threat to civil liberties, all one's procedural rights, freedom of speech, self-government, then one sees it differently and one can persuade the judges. Um, already in, uh, in our 
guess it was our first or second year, we had two briefs before the Supreme Court, which had a great impact. In the Gundy case, the Supreme Court reconsidered the so-called non-delegation doctrine, which actually allows the delegation of legislative power. It's a bit of a fib. And Gorsuch adopted our language. We said, don't talk about delegation, talk about vesting. The Constitution vests power in, in Congress. It can't vest itself of that power. Well, that's now part of the debate and it's opened up the question. So too for Chevron deference, people thought of it as separation of powers problem. We pointed out actually it's a threat to an unbiased trial and violation of due process. So due process claim, and that was picked up also by Justice Gorsuch. So the process, and I think about a third to fourth Third, uh, perhaps 40% of the judiciary, I think, now believes that argument. So the, the, the civil rights arguments, due process, free speech, they're very powerful. Interesting. And people had not been picking, on that, picking that up. That's right. They, did, they didn't see the civil liberties side of this. Do you find uh, you're, you're, you're a law professor at Columbia? I mean, one of the very top law schools in the, in the country. Um, is there, uh, we hear... Eh, is it true that um, younger people today are less, even in law school, less concerned about such things like due process, free speech, self-government, these, these uh, principles we've been talking about, civil liberties, just generally, that they're less concerned about that than their, than their forebears? You know, I, I don't, I'm not sure. Um, po- I think quite possibly. Um, but of course, I can't speak from my own experience because our students are, are not your average students, right? Right. I do think generally, though, that if one engages sincerely on these topics and points out the cost of civil liberties, even students who are apt to disagree will move enough to understand that there's a, a conversation to be had. So that people who begin dogmatically doubting whether or not there's anything to be said about the administrative, questioning the administrative state or uh, threats to free speech will, will then come to say, oh, right, that is a problem. Um, doesn't mean they've altered their political position, but that's not the goal. They've opened their minds to seeing the legal problem. And that, that's all I think that one really needs. Because the goal isn't to have left turn right, but to have left and right recognize our shared constitutional freedom. You talked a little bit ago about the privatization of enforcement that happens with the 501c3 tax code, uh, essentially the, the the state privatizes enforcement of it via church officials, church leaders, et cetera. Um, I may, may or may not have that right, but I think that that's what you basically said. Yes. What, what do you think about what has been called the – now, I'm, by the way, now I'm just veering off into a couple of other topics. Um, what do you think about the privatization of censorship, the so-called privatization of censorship through big tech uh, that's been – that's one way in which people have uh, described the current landscape and how that – how, how that is or ought to be related to the First Amendment's free speech guarantees. Right. Well, that has been <laughs> very much on my mind for a while. Okay, good. Um, so a number of years ago, uh, in a meeting with people of different, relig- different religious uh, backgrounds, but variations of Protestantism, um, this topic came up. And a young lawyer there asked me to sort of undertake this, to to think about this. This was about three or four years ago. And I did. Um, I won't tell you the full story, although it was interesting. But as a result of various frustrations uh, um, last summer, the summer before this last summer, I should say, um, I began to draft a statute uh, dealing, a state civil rights statute dealing with um, viewpoint discrimination by the various tech platforms. And so 
what I thought was an arcane topic suddenly became very <laughs> interesting <laughs> around November. Um, so I, I've been I've been peddling that draft to various states. Uh, well, hey, you're, now you're in my territory. You're in statutory solutions, uh, uh, Professor. That's right. <laughs> Hopefully, it isn't foolish. Uh, but that's been an interesting process, and I um, and I also undertook to to study what Section Two Hundred and Thirty has to say. People assume Two Hundred and Thirty protects the tech giants only in very limited ways, um, and it may also be unconstitutional for other for other reasons. Um, so there's a lot of room here. I don't want to go into too much detail on this because it's pretty arcane. But there's a lot of room here for state civil rights statutes, okay. um, pr- protecting individuals from viewpoint discrimination. And I think that will be the solution. Uh, it will have to be litigated afterwards, but I think that's going to be a solution. That's great. That's, that's, uh, that's actually very encouraging. Um, it, well, one more question uh, before we let you go. Uh, that was... Uh, somewhat of a random uh, veer by me. I'm going to veer in a slightly different direction now, but it's still related to civil liberties. Um, one of the more disturbing articles I've read in the last month or two um, was making the case that we are uh, might see something like, and in fact are very, potentially much closer than we might like to seeing something like a Chinese-style social credit system taking root in the United States. Um is that anything that keeps you up at night? Is someone who worries about <laughs> liberties, or do you think, oh, oh, Jeremy, that's that's so far beyond the pale; it's nothing to worry about. You know what really keeps me up at night? My it children. Does. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's good. If that's all that keeps you up at night. Um, but when I recover from those nights, uh, yes, of course, I worry about this. Uh, I, we all do. Uh, there's there's a lust for power that's evident currently. Uh, profoundly worrisome and it's enabled by big tech but these are things that have i i think can be addressed if recognized if i can just say a a word about how we respond i think there's a great danger on the right that problems are seen as political and there was and therefore there's a lot of devotion to political responses sometimes that works i don't want to disparage that um but on the left, it's recognized that lo- the litigation also matters. And the reality is that if you care about education, if you care about um, morals, if you care about our freedom to make the right decisions in life, one has to have that sphere of freedom in which to do that. And the way to protect that ultimately is not politics. Um, ulti- uh, you know, A little bit sometimes help. I hope the tech statute will work. But I think Ultimately, what matters here is litigation. Long-term strategic thinking in litigation is necessary to protect, not to get new rights, but just to protect our old rights. Um, and so, uh, and that's why it's called the New Civil Liberties Alliance. We want to work with other organizations to protect, to get a sort of umbrella to protect our freedoms before they're more completely eroded. Uh, there's so much at stake here. We have to fight for those freedoms. Uh, and within that freedom, hopefully we act with moral good sense. But without that freedom, we're going to be subject to controls that may be not only unfree, but profoundly immoral. Well, that's a good note on which to end, if not the happiest note of all, but that's okay. How, how <laughs> Thank you so get, much. How can people get involved with the New Civil Liberties Alliance? Well, we, we have a webpage. Just look up New Civil Liberties Alliance. I know it sounds like a basketball team, NCLA, um, but um, we're, we're on the uh, we're on the web, and you can read about some of our litigation there. Uh, we have a lot going on, uh, and of course, you can, people can also just be in touch with me 
if you look up hamburger at Columbia, not that hard to find. There's only that's right. There's only one of us there. Um, so <laughs> there's one, one one Dr. Beard, American philanthropic too. Right. So. Um, <laughs> thank you, uh, Professor Philip Hamburger, for your time and for your work and for the great conversation. Thank you so much. It's been fun. Hey, thanks for joining us today for this podcast. Before I let you go, I wanted to let you know about a special fundraising survey that American Philanthropic and the Center for Civil Society have just launched. And we would love it if you and your organization would participate. If you are a nonprofit organization that raises money, uh, you qualify for participating in the survey and we would love to have you be a part of it. How does it help you? Well, it's very, very hard to find good benchmarking data out there in the world to help you know how you're doing in your fundraising program. Are you underperforming here? Are you overperforming there? This survey will give you those answers. So we would love to have you participate. Uh, You can participate just by going to AmericanPhilanthropic.com and clicking on survey in the toolbar. And if you do participate, there's some cool things that happen. First of all, you get a free digital copy of the report, the final report that we produce uh, that includes all the data and that will be very useful to you in your fundraising planning, management, strategy, all that kind of stuff. You also get a free 30-minute consultation with one of our consultants to discuss your results and just kind of talk you through um, what we're seeing in your results and how they compare to your peers. And then there's all sorts of other stuff. You get a, a $100 gift card uh, for the first 10 organizations to complete the survey. You can enter into a drawing for a $500 gift card. You get a chance to win a seat at one of Amphil fundraising trainings, which is like a $3,000 value. So that's pretty cool. So, hey, if you are a leader of a nonprofit, a development officer, a board member, we would love for you to participate, just go to AmericanPhilanthropic.com, click on survey. It's a very meaty survey, and that's intentional because we get really great data and answers out of it for us to share with organizations like yours. So thank you very much for considering this, and we hope to have you in this survey. Thanks a lot. Mm-hmm.